What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Shane Snow is an award-winning journalist, celebrated entrepreneur, and the best-selling author of Smart Cuts, his new book Dream Teams, as well as the co-author of The Storytelling Edge. He is co-founder of the content technology company Contently. Snow's writing has appeared in Fast Company, Wired, and The New Yorker. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts and has been called a wonderkind by The New York Times, a digital maverick by Details, and his work Insanely Addicting by GQ. Learn about what the top teams across different industries and sports are doing to stay ahead of the game. One of the newest sponsors of the podcast and one of my favorite brands right now is Viore Clothing. Viore is the perfect performance apparel for anyone who loves yoga, surfing, hiking, being active, or in the weight room. They combine innovative fabrics with cool finishes that really feel good and are great for the environment. I would head over to vioreclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com to receive 25% off. Yes, that's 25% off your first order. Use discount code WGYT. And if at any point you're not satisfied with the purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your order with 100% satisfaction guaranteed at vioreclothing.com. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Shane Snow, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you, Sean? I am doing very well. Excited about your most recent project, Dream Teams, your new book. So I want to set the stage for your new book, Dream Teams, by talking a little bit about your first book, Smart Cuts. And uh, can you give the listeners a little context into what Smart Cuts was about and how that eventually led to Dream Teams? Yeah. So a lot of the writing that I've ended up doing in the last several years of my career is, I could sort of best describe it as trying to understand human behavior and specifically business and innovation through the lens of history and science. So what are the things going on in our brains that explain why things happen the way they do, specifically as it has to do with building things, inventing things, pushing forward, making progress. So Smart Cuts was, uh, it was my first book and it was a, an exploration of this idea called lateral thinking, which basically is the fancy term in psychology for uh, thinking outside the box or 
uh, approaching problems from new or unconventional angles. And, and there's a whole bunch of different facets to it that, uh, that are pretty were interesting to me. But basically, I noticed that when you, whenever you see a breakthrough in history, whether it's in science or the arts or business or you know politics, society, whatever it is, it's because someone changed the game instead of just playing the same game a little better. And uh, so I wanted to dig into the psychology of how that happens and then kind of apply that to sort of modern uh, success, I guess. And, you know, it was my first book, so I consider it sort of a freshman effort. But I, uh, you know, it was a really fun uh, journey. And I also told this story of lateral thinking and basically how to get yourself to think differently and, you know, and, uh, and be more innovative. Uh, I told it through the lens of... Uh, you know, of stories of like Skrillex, how he got his start or, you know, championship surfers or the use of the radio and the Cuban revolution and uh, things like that. And, uh, and it turns out that that's, you know, it's been five years now, I think since uh, that one came out and that's been, it's turned into, into kind of my favorite sort of writing, you know, fun stories that illustrate principles of psychology or neuroscience that help us to get better. And, and the new book, Dream Team, sort of builds on that in the same way. It's about getting better together and, uh, and in the same way that Smart Cuts explored, kind of debunking myths or you know, getting at the core of, of how progress happens, uh, doing that from a, a collaboration standpoint. So it's kind of the same theme, but building on on these things. Yeah, no, I really do enjoy your writing style. And I'm even just curious, how does this thought even come to be about really wanting to dive deep on those topics and write about that? Any any little things that you were exploring when you were younger that led to that? Yeah, well, when, when I was younger, I mean, it's interesting you ask about that. Because usually when I, I think about, you know, this stuff, the, the I, I had a journalism degree, right? And I, I write about science and I write about business and I've been, you know, doing lots of articles since forever. And uh, and I when I get curious about a topic, I then use journalism as an excuse to learn about it and then write about it. That's sort of the the game. I haven't historically done more than a handful of of stories of what most people would consider like sort of hard journalism, you know, investigating uh, crimes and things like that. I've done some of that. But most of what I've done is uh, is finding interesting answers to questions that I have, and uh, and so my books all sort of came out of my quest to understand how to make my own startup company better, and uh, and then you know getting sidetracked for a few years of of researching and writing. So that's that's kind of the answer I usually give. But but actually, when you ask you know from from my childhood or growing up, really what it is that got me on all of this in the first place. My father is an engineer, and we grew up in the desert of southeast Idaho, like sagebrush as far as the eye can see. And uh, and it's because he worked at a nuclear test facility. And we grew up, and even if you work at a nuclear reactor, if you live in Idaho, you don't make that much money. And we had a bunch of kids in our family, so we weren't very rich. Um, we lived in the middle of nowhere. And so my dad was always fixing things, building things, trying to save money. We always had really crappy cars. And so I grew up with his father who, you know, taught me how nuclear science works, but then also taught me how to, you know, tear apart a carburetor and pull up, you know, wood flooring and, and kind of grew up with this, uh, I guess this engineering sort of approach to, uh, almost like hacking solutions to, to problems in a physical sense, which, you know, engineers do tear things apart, figure out how they work, figure out a better way to fix it. And, uh, and so, 
I, I kind of have always had, you, you have those kinds of lessons happen when you're a very small child and you kind of see the world from that perspective a little bit. So I've sort of always wanted to, or tried to, or just naturally kind of applied that sort of deconstruct and reconstruct sort of mentality of engineering to my writing, which is why when I say, you know, I like looking at science and how it explains decisions that humans make or how we get better together, how we build businesses, that's sort of what it is, is deconstructing, you know, some groups, uh, outrageous success, beating the odds, you know, uh, in the new book I talk about, you know, in one case, a ragtag army that overwhelming odds against them and they, they save the day and deconstructing what are the dynamics between these people that allowed that to happen? Uh, what's going on, you know, interpersonally, what's the psychology that allowed them to work together, even though they were a group of misfits and, and some of them hated each other and, and actually sort of tearing that apart like you would a car engine and then putting it back together. And you do that enough times with enough research and stories and you start to see patterns. And uh, so that, that's kind of where it comes from, I guess, if I, if I were to, uh, you know, to deconstruct my own process. I, I think that's kind of what I have done uh, for, for most of my writing career. Yeah, no, it definitely makes a lot more sense now, kind of the collaboration between those two things you had as a childhood and and what that led to within your writing. And I mean, I really want to dive into dream teams here and learn a little bit more about the research that went into this. Did, did you initially have the thought that, hey, this is the book I want to write, this is what I need to figure out in order to execute that properly? Or did you kind of come across these different things and say, hey, this might be a really cool book? So what happened is I always have this running list of ideas, you know, story ideas or you know, questions I have that I, you know, want to research and potentially write about. Don't want to distract you too much, but how do you compile that list? Are you handwriting these? Is this an Evernote file? I, uh, so I'm one of those crazy people that I write down whatever I have handy, I will write it down, but it all eventually does end up in an Evernote file. But I, you know, I write on paper plates and, you know, windows (laughs) and whatever. Um, So yeah, and I like the uh, and you, and you see it like a lot of you know really interesting writers do this where um, and actually just interesting innovative people in general and I, I try to copy this is uh, you find inspiration in everything you start seeing the world uh, the analogy I like is when I was a teenager and I started skateboarding suddenly every piece of concrete looked like potentially something you could skateboard on and uh, and once you see that you can't unsee it and so i you know i do i'll hear something interesting and i'll write it down and um and so yeah it does end up in evernote eventually but it's this very sloppy kind of process uh but uh but i I, i'm a big fan of the scientific method so what i'll do is i'll and the scientific method it starts with you make an observation so someone tells me a story or you know i I hear something or see something on the news or you know i learn something or whatever it is observation and um and so an example of something that, that ended up uh, triggering some things for me uh, with the book, I, you know, so my father working in nuclear engineering, I grew up with this story about how all these scientists came together, put their heads together, and eventually we harnessed the power of the atom. Super cool, you know, and, and also, you know, an atom, uh, nuclear energy is atoms smashing together to make heat, also super cool. And then I made this observation uh, several years ago, maybe eight years ago now, when I was in New York and I met this guy who is the director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute, which is this sort of terrifying sounding organization that basically, <laughs> <was> gonna say. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're the guys that if an asteroid is hurtling towards the earth, they're the ones that call up the United Nations and are like, we got to do something about this. So they, they, they monitor the situation, uh, 
of whatever could destroy mankind. Um, it was just sort of fascinating. So you meet someone like this, and of course you have lots of questions for him. And uh, and so the observation I made when I, I talked to this guy is uh, basically he was very confident that the number one risk to the future of humanity is nuclear war, and not because we'll blow up the whole planet, but because it takes a surprisingly few amount, a surprisingly small amount of detonations to like ruin the atmosphere, basically. So this observation I had was uh, that bothered me, um, but this is, I'm getting back to the scientific method, um, was that the same thing that put food on the table growing up, the same, you know, wonderful potential energy that could make, you know, cheap power to power cities is also the same thing that turns out is the number one most likely thing to destroy mankind. And what an awful paradox that is. So that was the observation I made. And then I had a question um, that basically was, well, why? And, uh, you know, and, and also, is, is this the same way with any tool that we invent? You know, and, and then in scientific method, you form a hypothesis. My hypothesis was, well, yeah, but the, the more powerful the thing we invent, the more dangerous it is also, which is sort of an obvious hypothesis, but, you know, bear with me. The, but my hypothesis of why, uh, you know, the same thing could be so likely to destroy us and also likely to, you know, kind of change things for good, at least the storyline I grew up with from my dad who worked in it, right? Um, and the, uh, the hypothesis was that it had something to do with... Uh, the very different heads that had to come together to make that breakthrough also somehow, you know, in our capacity to make breakthroughs because we're different. We also, those same differences lead us to want to fight and be suspicious of each other and all that. And, and that basically was a big question and hypothesis that it, it, it's almost sort of obvious, but I wanted to, to get into, well, how do you prove that? And what are the nuances of that? And so that's when, you know, start reading about the neuroscience of uh, cognitive diversity and, um, you know, and the amygdala and humans that are suspicious of each other, you know, based on whatever this and that. And, um, and then, you know, you do a bunch of research, you do a bunch of reporting and, and because I'm sort of an obsessive person, I go down a rabbit hole and then eventually you make a conclusion and you write an article about it. So I, I had a bunch of things on my list that I was writing about. That was one. Um, and I didn't write a book about nuclear war, but it was it was an interesting, you know, thing that I sort of explored that ended up tying together with what the book became. But I, I was exploring lots of different things and writing about them. And I realized that a whole bunch of the things that I'd been exploring and having these questions about and sort of going through this you know process of hypothesis and experiment and research and conclusion, a bunch of them actually kind of lived under the same umbrella, this theme of humans, when different humans come together, we make breakthroughs or we break down. And you see this in, you know, I, I started researching corporate mergers and why so many of them fail, why most of them fail. Turns out, you know, it comes down to this same kind of idea. All this potential usually doesn't happen. Um, I was looking at, uh, you know, at marriage statistics and why those tend to fall apart. I was looking at um, the history of, uh, of discrimination in America and certain groups and you know, why was it that um, it turns out that in, in the course of 20 years from the 50s to the 70s or really the mid 40s, um, we went from uh, Asian Americans in, you know, in, in the U.S. went from making, you know, 70 percent the salary of white Americans to 95 percent of the salary. And why did that happen? And yet at the same time, other groups, um, you know, uh, Latin Americans and black Americans did not 
have that increase and what happened. And, and uh, so I had all these questions, these things that I was just randomly exploring as part of my journalistic process and realized that they, they all fit kind of underneath this, this paradox. And, uh, and originally the, uh, when I realized this is enough to make a book and, you know, I'm fascinated enough that I could spend the next few years of my life on this. Originally it was about this idea of, um, outsiders and, um, and eventually it, I sort of chipped away at that and realized that the promise of, you know, this science and this phenomenon is actually more interesting than the phenomenon itself. The promise that, Hey, if we learn to work together in the right ways, we learn to put the right ingredients together and, and, and cook them in the right ways that we can actually change our partnerships, our families, our communities, our companies and, and our lives. And even if you do a lot of solo work, you can use these same kinds of principles to make your own work uh, get better. So that's why I turned into dream teams and not um, something around like the outsider effect or whatever that, you know, sort of one of the earlier iterations. But yes, it's a very big problem. I'm totally rambling, by the way. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, it's a lot to uncover here. And, and you mentioned a phrase, cognitive diversity. And I would love for you to kind of just break that down, what that term means to you. Um, and then we can kind of explore a little bit more on, on how you cover that in the book. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's something that, that's fascinated me for a while. This idea that two heads are not better than one unless those heads are different. And only then, it's only potentially are they better than one. So it turns out if you have a group of people, and this is almost obvious, but we don't usually think about this. If you have a group of people that all think the same, they're only going to be as smart as the smartest person in that group. And, or if they all have the same perspective, which is, as I kind of break it down in the book, that's one half of your mental toolkit is your perspective, how you see the world or how you encode problems, how you, you take things that you encounter and, and sort of process them in your brain. Um, if you all have the same perspective, it's going to be really hard for you, you to, your heads to actually be better than just the smartest one of those heads. But if two heads think differently enough, if they have different perspectives and those perspectives are relevant to whatever, you know, problem you're tackling, then they can be better than one. And this is what's called cognitive diversity. Uh, diversity itself, right? The, the word is sort of this charged term, especially in America. Um, people say diversity when they mean race, but they're too scared to say race or when they mean gender, but they are too scared to actually say Women usually is what is what people are saying when they're talking about gender diversity, um, because it's it's sort of this charged term that's uh, that's become sort of this weird, weirdly politicized and, and very important. You know, those are, are very important um, parts of society and and who we are and and you know all of us. But um, cognitive diversity, what diversity really means, is just a variety of things. So you could say cognitive variety. That's not the scientific term, but cognitive variety means you have a variety of different brains, basically, that uh, can bring different cognition to you know to a situation. But you can also have cognitive diversity inside of a single brain. There's sort of a uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense the way that I describe it, but if you have lived an array of experiences, lived in a lot of places, or you've explored a lot of topics gotten educated across different fields or, you know, just your life story has led you to think uh, differently about a lot of topics or you gain a lot of sort of expertises in different areas, then you have a bit of cognitive diversity in your own head, which is kind of, you know, Einstein, for example, sat in the patent office 
And he reviewed patents of all these different kinds of inventions from all these different categories of things. And he also played the violin and he was really into the theater and he was into physics. So he had all of these things in his head that actually helped him to be smarter at physics um, or that potentially could. And, and he drew analogies from these things. So that's what cognitive diversity is about, is about not being so singularly minded in your own head or, or in a group. And it turns out this becomes extremely important when you get down to solving hard problems. Um, because basically that two heads are only better than one if they're different thing uh, becomes much more important when the problems are so big that no one person has the best answer. And, and we've gotten to a point in kind of humanity where anything new that we're working on is pretty darn hard and probably pretty impactful, probably pretty important uh, potentially. And, uh, and we also have all these tools to get people who are very different from each other from all around the world with very different expertises and backgrounds and everything, we can actually connect with those people. And, uh, and so we have a lot of potential there. But the thing that cognitive diversity brings is uh, also this sort of potential for conflict that can be healthy. You know, the, the cognitive diversity smashing together, that friction is, is, is where, you know, ideas come from. It's where creativity and breakthroughs happen. But as you know, as you probably know from real life, if you see something very differently from someone else, it's very easy for that to devolve into an argument that gets personal or that goes nowhere or that, uh, you know, that turns into something that's not about ideas at a certain point. And that naturally happens in brains because our brains are wired to uh, be wary of anything that is new or different because that could be a threat. And, and this goes as far as people who don't look or act like you or think like you, as well as, you know, any kind of novel idea. It's great research. Um, and by great, I mean, interesting, um, sort of depressing research that, uh, that shows that we're less likely to elect someone or to promote someone into leadership who we think of as a primarily creative person because being creative means you think differently about things and that's inherently risky. And so we subconsciously don't think of them as leaders, despite the fact that research that, you know, in the same time period from leaders of fortune 500 companies say, says that creativity and that thinking differently is actually the number one attribute that we need in the leaders of the next generation of, you know, of companies and all that. Um, so, that's that's a long answer to what cognitive diversity is and why it's important. But it, if you boil down, you know, the ingredients for uh, changing anything and and solving novel problems, you have to start with cognitive diversity, or you're not going to get anywhere new. So then, if if I'm running an organization, small business, large business, what you want is to surround yourself with people who are much different than you and think differently. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have this tendency to. Uh, to want to hire for unity and for fit and, you know, uh, to want to pick people who remind you of you or your younger self. Right. And, and we sort of naturally do this, but we also think that that's, you know, having this great unity is what's going to help a team to, to, you know, push forward and be its best self. turns out that you can make a decent team that way, but if you want a team that's going to be groundbreaking and that's smarter than you, then you want to surround yourself with people who are very different and you need to, to then manage, you know, the, the situation and, and the relationships. But, um, but that's what you want. You want people who push you, who stretch you to be better 
rather than people who confirm your way of seeing the world. I was fascinated by your work uh, in the book around police officers. And can you, can you dive a little bit deeper on that and kind of how these different partnerships really benefited the most? Yeah. So this is one of those stories that, that I was exploring separately that kind of clicked into place. And, and I realized this was part of, of what became the book is I saw this statistic that female police officers are six times less likely to shoot someone than male police officers. And, uh, and eight times less likely to be um, reported for violent behavior or sort of uh, overstepping in, uh, in the line of duty. And, uh, and, and someone in, in some pundit said, well, why don't we make all police officers women then if they make fewer mistakes and they don't shoot people you know, wrongly? And, uh, and so I had the question, well, why is that, first of all? And, uh, and what would happen if we made all police officers women? And, uh, and would that be a good thing? And, and what does this boil down to? So went on, uh, on a bit of a, a hunt. I interviewed a lot of high-ranking women in law enforcement, FBI, ATF, uh, homicide detectives in Brooklyn, super interesting people. Um, and, uh, and then I also dug through police statistics and history of the FBI and basically concluded that uh, exactly what we're talking about with cognitive diversity is something that's at play, especially when it comes to solving crimes and preventing crimes. Is basically, you know, crime solving and, and and crime prevention is all problem solving and it's all custom. You know, there's some crimes that it's the same thing over and over again, but it's really custom work when you're a detective. And so you have to, you know, look at each situation differently. And it turns out that the more perspectives you have looking at a situation, the better. And so these basically the research bore out that. Some things, if we're speaking in general terms, some things about growing up as uh, identifying as a man or a woman or, you know, uh, generally most women, by the time you're in middle school, they have less upper body strength than the uh, than the boys do. And uh, if you grow up that way and you live your whole life that way, then you develop heuristics that are you tend to develop heuristics that are different than than your peers who are, are male do. So, for example, if you can't kick a door down because you're not strong enough or as strong as your your male buddies, then you learn other ways to get through a locked door is sort of, you know, a random example. But think about a police officer, right? Police officer that's big and strong and has been big and strong his whole life. He encounters a locked door. He might try and kick it down. Police officer who's a woman uh, not knows she's not going to have an easy time kicking the door down. She might have in her life developed some pretty good negotiation skills for convincing someone to give her a key to the door that they don't want unlocked. And uh, anyway, so what happens is uh, police partnerships that have men and women together are basically, they, they make fewer mistakes, they're more confident in their work, they're amazing at solving crimes, or they you know generally tend to be. And, uh, and it, if we had all women as police officers, we'd actually also suffer because both the men and the women get better and think differently when they're working together in the context of, of police. And I, I dug in further that this applies, you know, to, uh, to police officers of different races. It applies when you have like an old cop and a young rookie cop together. Uh, it applies with gay cops and straight cops together. And, you know, it's not to say that every time you have people who are different in some way working together on a job, you know, a detective case, that it will be better. It's just that overall, statistically, you have a much higher chance of, of doing better, which uh, is super, super interesting. 
And it's sort of the perfect entree into this idea that, uh, you know, that what's inside of our head not only is, is very much correlated to who we are on the outside, but, uh, but actually this case for quote unquote diversity at work actually makes everyone better. It isn't just about the moral thing, which is, you know, a good thing, but we need, and yeah, so we only have 12% uh, women police officers in America now. And if we made it 50%, it wouldn't just be for, you know, the good of, of, you know, jobs for, for women in law enforcement, it would actually be better for society to have more of that kind of collaboration in solving crimes. I mean, some fascinating research you did behind that. And a little while ago, you mentioned Einstein and, and his Ooh. cognitive diversity in his own head. And so what I'm trying to think of right now is if you're a creative or even trying to think from a business context, how do you figure out how much to focus on your sole focus from a business perspective and then think outside the box by studying new research? How, how do you balance both of those? Yeah, I... For me, my I kind of do the 80-20 rule. So, you know, Google's 20% time. You know about that concept? Yes, I do. Yeah. So uh, anyone who doesn't know who's listening to this, it's basically Google engineers, 20% of their time they can spend on sort of exploratory projects that if they don't pan out, it's fine. And sometimes they end up, you know, being something super cool, like Gmail came out of this. So some developers in their off time. Um, so... I kind of like to apply that in my own work. If 80% of the time I'm focusing on my core focus, whatever it is that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of striving for career-wise, and 20% of my time I'm allowing myself to explore other things. Maybe it's just Saturdays, you know, but uh, things that are completely outside of the the vein of what I'm normally focusing on. Um, that not only is it, it keeps you more sane than being solely focused. But it also, uh, for me, I think it's a good balance of being able to explore other things that then increase your cognitive diversity and you can pull analogies in into, uh, into your other work. So that's why, for me, because I love writing so much, um, my, I, I started a, you know, my company and then now I'm back full-time to writing, basically. Um, because I love writing so much, um, I will spend some 20%, 25% of my writing time Actually, writing about things that have nothing to do with business or science, you know, writing about ice cream or, you know, comedians or, you know, whatever. And uh, and it's funny because often that stuff ends up being applicable later. And, you know, there's a story in this book about this guy who tried to build a giant dome over a town in Vermont. And it's like this kind of zany story. And that was actually something that I was exploring separately from the book, just, uh, you know, as something that I thought would be a fun thing to do. And it turns out that I was able to actually connect it very well to my book topic. But yeah, I think 20% of your time, you ought to give yourself the latitude to really dig deep into something that's not your core. You mentioned the 80-20 principle. And I, I'm also wondering, what are some other things you do to kind of really bring out that inner creative? Do you have any routines or anything like that, that, hey, I'm, I'm writing at the same coffee shop, same time every single day? Yeah. So a couple of things. I think rituals are really important. And there's there's good you know science research that shows us that a ritual that you can have that gets you in the mode that you need to be in when you're working on something creative. Um, it's really good. So for me, my ritual is, uh, is I always write from coffee shops and basically when I get antsy or stuck, then I move to another coffee shop. And so I coffee shop hop kind of all day long. And, uh, and that's just my thing. And so when I'm like, okay, I got a day full of writing, 
I start to get excited about, oh, I'm going to go to these, all the coffee shops. I'm going to explore some new ones. And um, so that's kind of my ritual. I also have a little lucky coyote that comes with me. He's like a little stone figurine that, uh, that sits by my laptop and he keeps me company, even though, you know, it, it almost sounds superstitious. For me, it's this, uh, this reminder of, okay, it's writing time and the coyote's with me. <laughs> it's sort of my little spirit animal. Um, but also one of the benefits of coffee shops is, uh, science shows that when we have a tiny amount of distraction, like a low level of distraction when we're working it helps us to be subconsciously a little bit more creative because creativity is, it's connecting those dots between different things. It's connecting the cognitive diversity that you have in your head. So, you know, you want to build up a whole bank of stuff and then you need to make connections. And so as I'm writing, if I'm, you know, focusing, then if there's a low level of noise, because I'm in a coffee shop, not so loud or so crazy and real conversations that it distracts me, um, you know, at a conscious level, but it's, it's subconsciously distracting, then it, it actually helps your brain be a little more creative. And it lets, so things that your brain knows don't belong together, it puts up walls between, um, you know, things slip through the walls when your brain gets distracted by coffee shop music and little things going around. So that, that's part of what I do. People sometimes also will listen to music that, that they know that's like familiar music on repeat um, over and over again to get the same effect. It sort of puts you in a trance, which is cool, but it also subtly distracts you in little bits that doesn't take you away from what you're working on, but keeps your brain kind of uh, on its toes, so to speak. And I know that's like any neuroscientist that would listen to that would be like, you just butchered that. But, uh, but that's essentially <laughs> uh, what's going on. So those are kind of my routines. I'd also say I, uh, I really subscribe to this idea that one of my editors um, told me a long time ago that I think applies for any kind of creative work. But, uh, but he said that great writing is only one third writing and the rest of it, the other two thirds are research and thinking. And, uh, so, you know, with, with dream teams, I spent two years of research and thinking and outlining and, you know, chipping away at the ideas and kind of memorizing my notes so that I could sit down and spend a couple of months actually writing. And then, and, you know, a lot of time revising. Um, but, uh, I, when I studied for smart cuts pro surfers, I found the same thing that the difference between the best surfers in the world and the people who get, you know, fifth place in the world championships are the best surfers in the world will come to the beach early six in the morning. They'll watch the waves. They'll sit there and study the waves and they'll think and get into the, you know, the mode of what they're going to do. And they look for kind of patterns and how the waves roll and on this day in this place. And, uh, and that actually is more important at a certain point than, you know, a marginal amount of shoulder strength to swim in the water. So I, I think that that, in terms of a ritual, spending way more time doing the thinking and workshopping of the ideas so that you can spend less time with the execution, that's, a, that's turned into a habit of mine now. No, I'm so glad you brought up the example of the surfers from Smart Cuts. I absolutely love that example and glad you were able to tie that in here. You mentioned when you're just thinking, what does that actually look like? Are you just sitting there purely thinking? Are you going for a walk, anything like that? If I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do a lot of like note scribbling and, you know, I, I like to think on sticky notes and pencil and paper. Um, often I will go to a new place, sort of a new environment so that, you know, I'm, I'm a little untethered from my home and my sort of fixed ideas. Um, I really like going to different countries when I, you know, uh, for all of my books, I've, I've spent a lot of time in other countries. 
thinking and and outlining and and writing and workshopping from places that are just far enough away from my home that I I feel like I can have a little more latitude and, and maybe some of this is subconscious or just in my own head uh, latitude to sort of let go of my previous ideas. Um, but I do like to go on really long walks when I'm really thinking something over. Um, and New York City is great for this because everything you know, everything's interesting that you walk by. So I'll walk a hundred blocks and uh, just through the city, thinking by myself. And you're you're like this nobody in this sea of people and architecture. And uh, I also do that when I'm sad. <laughs> it really helps me process. You know, you you get to ruminate on everything. You're making forward progress because you're literally walking around. And then by the time you're done, you're a little bit tired and you feel kind of like more settled. So that that is part of my process a lot. Yeah, no, long walks, something I implemented as well and certainly helps the creative process. And one of my favorite things you brought up in the book was the content around Netflix uh, and the movie store worker. Can you can you share that example for the listeners? Sure. So I uh, I write about um, about content and stories kind of in all of my books, all three of them. But uh, uh, my middle book was literally about stories. Um, but in the, the capstone chapter of Dream Teams is about the power of stories and, and sort of the neuroscience of oxytocin for making people care in order to, to get a lot of people on board with that cause or something really important. So social movements and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the Netflix guy, uh, and, and that story actually comes from a book that's coming out, uh, on June 13th. So a week after mine came out June 5th, week after mine, uh, a book called The Creative Curve by a dear friend of mine named Alan Gannett. He's the one who actually wrote the wrote about this Netflix story. I, I wrote about kind of the the zoom out principles uh, behind this, but that I'll, I'll share this story and, and anyone who's listening should definitely check out The Creative Curve. It's a great book. Um, but uh, basically the guy who runs Netflix's content program, like the chief content officer, he uh, he's in charge of, you know, he's in charge of acquiring all of the the licenses to all the movies and TV shows. He's in charge of greenlighting all of this original stuff they do. And, you know, he oversaw the building of the algorithm that recommends, you know, what you should watch next. And uh, so when you think about what's the perfect kind of person to run that sort of thing, the answer is this guy. I think his name's Ted Sarandos, I believe. Um, and uh, when he was a teenager, he worked at a movie store. And, uh, you know, you can imagine like dorky, pimply teenager at the movie store counter being bored. He decided that he was going to watch every movie in the movie store and uh, so that he could recommend people what they should watch next. And so he watched like thousands of movies and, uh, you know, probably didn't have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. He, you know, he just watched movies, tons of movies. And um, and then people would come in and he'd, they'd say, oh, I love this movie. They say, oh, you should check out this movie. And so he became a human recommendation engine. But he also in consuming all of that content, all of those stories he uh, he started to understand the patterns of what becomes popular and why at a much deeper level than most people and that most you know movie executives even understand about you know there, there's so many variables in the success of a, a movie or a TV show. He basically by watching everything, uh, he could figure out what was going which movies were actually going to be popular when they came out in the theaters and which were not and, and why and and I think he also, had to have, you know, the, the neuroscience research that I did in Dream Teams around stories and movies and content shows that uh, you can't do that without your brain training itself 
to uh, to basically have a higher level of open mindedness, respect for people and viewpoints that are different than you. You take in stories, you know, movies uh, about people who are not you, and uh, and it's it's really hard to be closed minded if you do enough of that. And uh, and so he's you know he's known as this very innovative guy that's helped Netflix you know build this massive business and create amazing TV shows and movies. And, uh, and part of that is because he is, uh, you know, he's a pattern recognizer. He, he has great instincts now from that bank of content that he can now connect dots inside of his brain with, but he also is open-minded in a way that I think, uh, you know, a lot of us, if we could get to that point, we would be a lot better at taking the kinds of risks and, uh, making the kinds of bets, considering the kinds of viewpoints that could change our companies or our lives. So super cool guy. No, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And I mean, here you all are one of the most sought after speakers and writers around innovation and lateral thinking. I'm curious, what are you consuming and digesting every day? Are there certain books you're reading, blogs, articles, things like that, that you really like to fill your brain with? Yeah, I, I sort of have a routine. I, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of news. I try and stay up on things. So I read the New York Times, I read Vox, um, and I read io9, which is like sci-fi, <laughs> sci-fi news. Um, so those are kind of my news sources. And if I'm traveling, I always tune into Anderson Cooper on CNN from the hotel room. That's just my part of my routine. Um, but, uh, but besides news, which I think is important, news doesn't make you more open-minded, but it's important for being informed. Right. Um, but, uh, in terms of, of what I read to, to expand my mind, I, I do read a lot of nonfiction science books and, and business books, or I'll skim a lot. Um, I really like experimental fiction. I've been on this kind of experimental fiction kick for a while for all these reasons that we've been talking about. Um, but I, I love Murakami. Um, I don't know if you ever get into any of his stuff, but he's, uh, he's basically surrealist uh, Japanese author, uh, who his stuff is just like bonkers. It, it's, it's surreal. It kind of like messes with your head, but really entertaining and interesting. It makes you think, it's, you know, his is the kind of stuff that once you, you close the book, you can't stop thinking for, you know, days. So I like reading stuff like that. I just, how do you spell his last name? M U R A K A M I. Murakami. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have that in the show notes. Then I'll have to check yeah. that out. Kafka on the Shore is my favorite by him. Uh, it's it's the most messed up, but also like delightful book. It's uh, has talking cats and the ghost of Colonel Sanders. It's like the most random, um, but uh, but also this surrealist sort of philosophical journey through Japan. Anyway, it's I I did not do it justice with that pitch, <laughs> but <laughs> I just read also this great book called October, which is, uh, so the, the communist revolution in Russia happened a hundred years ago, you know, at 1917. And for that hundred year anniversary, an experimental horror writer named China Mayville wrote a, uh, basically a history book about the, the Bolshevik revolution. So you can imagine a history book about, you know, the, the overthrowing of the, the czars and the, you know, the rise of communism, written by someone who normally writes about like slimy horror monsters is it's one of the most deliciously written nonfiction books I've read in a long time. And, and that story itself is, is very interesting and it's not 
uh, black and white, like, uh, you know, a lot of sort of Western history paints, uh, you know, that revolution. There's a lot of really interesting sort of promise, promises broken, use of art and, uh, you know, to win over the hearts of people and really interesting uh, stuff and uh, and told through, you know, a very different kind of writer, not a historian, I, I found to be, did another example of what we're talking about, cognitive diversity, making something um, kind of wonderful. So, I mean, you just came out with Dream Teams. What do you think is next for you? I... I, th- I think I'm done writing books for a little bit. Uh, a, little, a little break needed? A little break. It'll be a few <laughs> years. But I, there are some stories that I really want to, uh, to tell. And so, I mean, I'll still be writing magazine stuff, but I, I have in my head that, uh, that I, I might get into uh, some television projects to tell some stories that I think uh, might make more sense on the screen than in a book. Um, in particular, I'll just pitch this. You can tell me what you think. In particular, I'm fascinated by, uh, speaking of communists, uh, the Cuban Revolution. And, uh, you know, I wrote a bit about the Cuban Revolution and the use of radio and smart cuts. Um, but there's uh, there's this sort of fascinating uh, couple of stories that were part of that revolution that people don't really know about. One is, um, is it, the revolution was actually started, it was sparked by a woman. Uh, named Celia Sanchez, who's one of my favorite characters in history that kind of just ends up being a footnote in this revolution. But she started it and she was one of the generals, uh, one of Castro's generals in, in the, uh, you know, the rebellion. Super interesting woman and, uh, and just sort of badass and, and someone that I look up to. And, you know, despite, once again, revolution is messy and, you know, and, and their vision got changed and, and twisted over time. And, you know, good guys became bad guys and bad guys became good guys and all that, which makes a great story, but she's fascinating. So I think, you know, telling her story in a a more cinematic way, um, could be really fun. And then also at the same time, and it turns out that, you know, the, the Italian American mafia was running Havana while all this revolution was going on. And JFK was partying on yachts with, you know, the Bacardi air and, you know, and, uh, the, in Havana and anyway, a lot of really fun, interesting, fascinating dynamics to that story. So, um, I don't know, does that sound like something that you'd watch if, uh, if I tried to write it? Yeah, no, I mean, you, you certainly have me intrigued with both those storylines and I, I hope you do actually bring that to light. Uh, via video because that would be fascinating to watch and I, I love how you write so i'm excited to see how your talents translate to that as well well thank you yeah it may be one of those things that i get on a kick and i realize that it's uh it's not meant to be but i think it that itself is just an illustration of i'm i'm gonna spend my 20 percent time on pursuing things like that to see what happens and maybe something will come to fruition and in the meantime i'll keep writing about science and business and human collaboration all these things that i've been uh, excited about for so long. Yeah, that would be great. Well, Shane Snow, your latest book, Dream Teams, fascinating stuff. Uh, I've, I've always loved you as a writer, so excited to see what you're going to be doing next. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? ShaneSnow.com. Easy enough. It's just my name and you can contact me there. You can find all my stuff and um, whatever you do, don't click the button that says, do not click this button, <laughs> whatever you do. <laughs> awesome. Well, Shane, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Sean. Looking to freshen up your wardrobe for the summer season? Having trouble finding a brand whose products are functionally built to move and sweat in, but designed with a casual aesthetic aimed at everyday life? Then Viore is the clothing brand you've been looking for. Viore merges technical clothing with a West Coast vibe that looks and fits great. 
Viore's motto is built to move in, styled for life. They have a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore has incorporated innovative fabrics that feature anti-odor finishes, moisture wicking, and quick dry finishes. My favorite being Sea Cell, which is a sustainably sourced fiber that uses a blend of algae and wood pulp to create the most comfortable shirts you've ever felt. They really are. They're incredible. They're also anti-odor and filled with vitamins and nutrients that are released when you sweat. To receive 25% off, yes, that's 25% off your order, head to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com and use discount code W-G-Y-T. If at any point you're unsatisfied with your purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your entire order with a 100% satisfaction guaranteed. VioriClothing.com, discount code WGYT for 25% off your order. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.